Good evening, everyone. So my guest today has a, for want of a better expression, is heavily, heavily involved in the Dreamcast community in the United Kingdom. He has published one book so far called Dreamcast Years, Year One, and is in the progress of making Year Two. He hosts the Dreamcast Years podcast every week, which has been picked up by Radio Sega, and is also heavily involved in the Dreamcast junkyard. But more than that, he's a very, very big Shenmue fan, which is why he's here today. And the name of my guest is Andrew Dickinson. Hello, Andrew. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, Matt. I'm uh, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So we'll, we'll kick off, and I want you to take us all the way back to when you picked up gaming. So talk me through your first console, your favourite games, and just give me a bit of your gaming history. Yeah, it's it's a weird one for me. So like gaming didn't like properly click for a while for me, so... I uh, I kind of got into it with the NES and the SNES. So my my mum bought me and my brother and my sister like a NES. Um, I can't remember when because that was a long time ago now, and my memory doesn't quite stretch that far back. But I remember being quite young. Um, <laughs> and we had the Mario games, of course, and stuff like Double Dragon and all that. Kind yeah, of good stuff. And we had a fun time. But um, it was I know I think I always say this when I'm kind of mentioned about gaming as a kid. I, I kind of grew up in a time where. Um, playing outside was something that your parents almost forced you to do so even though we had like the games console we were kind of always being forced outside to go and play with the the neighborhood kids and go ride on our bikes and things like that which was very nice but we had like consoles for when it was a rainy day or if we're a bit bored and stuff so it was it was just like a supplement rather than the thing that I did constantly and uh, and we had the same with the snares we had a snares which was also great really enjoyed it I remember getting like a weird Adams Family game for it, and I I can't okay. remember the name of it now, but I remember really enjoying it, even though I wasn't really the biggest Adams Family fan. But like the game was quite cool. It was like a platformer type game on the SNES, and I I really can't remember the name of it now. But I'm sure somebody shouting it there uh, at their, <laughs> their their phone now. The name of the game. Um, but yeah, and then it wasn't really until the PlayStation One came out. I properly got into stuff and um, I believe that it was my stepsister who was a couple of years older than me. She, uh, I was probably like 14, 14 at the time and she brought over um, her PlayStation because um, she came over to visit every so often and uh, she brought it over and she was busy doing something with the rest of the family downstairs and I, I asked if I could take it into my room because uh, I was one of the lucky kids who had a TV in their room and uh so i was like yeah sure so i took it into my room and she'd bought a couple of games and one of the games she bought with her was resident evil oh yes great game absolutely incredible like i uh, i've been a horror movie fan since i was probably and this is a weird thing to say since i was probably about 11 years old and that's because my mum loves horror films and so she wasn't too shy about showing us that kind of stuff like you know she she wouldn't sit there and show us like really horrible gory stuff but you know we'd we'd watch like goosebumps on tv Mm -hmm. and we'd like and uh, to be fair she did i did i think she did let me see bram stoker's dracula at the age of 12 okay Uh, um (laughs) So she wasn't, you know, she wasn't an angel either. But anyway, I, I, I was totally into horror and I still am. And so this kind of uh, horror game was like completely, I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never seen like a horror game before. And I was like, this this could be quite good. So I tried it. I was absolutely hooked. Like I could not stop playing it. I, I was so sad when my sister had to take away uh, the PlayStation <laughs> when she left again. And I was like, no. Um, so somehow I think um, we decided to get a PlayStation for ourselves and, course i got resident evil again and 
uh, and all this, all that stuff. And that's how I discovered things like Final Fantasy VII and Ridge Racer Type Four and all these other amazing games that came out for the PlayStation. And uh, of course, at the time as well, it was a time when people liked to pirate things quite a lot and yeah yeah i remember those days very well yes and uh, my stepdad was not shy about doing that kind of stuff so he he chipped our playstation (laughs) quite quickly and uh he had like mates at work who had burned discs and stuff oh really yeah so we just got like all these games and i remember we got like a copy of thrill kill as well uh, when i was like 15 or something that the bad that game that never came out but it kind of was made and that was an interesting game um but weirdly like you know that was great and it was fun and it was nice to try all the games but i was always like proper big into buying the actual boxes i loved having yeah. the real box with the artwork mm-hmm. and the manual and yeah. you know so i'd always go for that me and my brother pitched in together our pocket money and bought final fantasy 7 together because uh, we really wanted to get the actual game and play it together and um yeah i mean i was, I was big into physical stuff even back then um <laughs> just the way to go but you know it was nice to have the option and and to get to try out all these games um and i think that's kind of where i became a gamer um with the playstation and i'd never at this point i'd never even owned a sega console i think i'd once played a mega drive at somebody's house and that's about my that's that's all i'd done sega wise and it wasn't until i eventually got the dreamcast that i'd ever properly played a sega console so yeah wow yeah. So that's that's an interesting take. Everybody I've had on the, on the show so far, they've always gone through like the Master System, the Mega mm-hmm. Drive, the Saturn, Dreamcast, you know, throwing the Game Gear or the Mega CD. Mm-hmm. So your take on it, which is from the dark side in some respects, being on the <laughs> NES and the SNES, yep. it's it's a very different take on it. But it, it's funny how it leads to the Dreamcast. So talk me into the, the Dreamcast a bit and how that sort of came about. Sure. Um, so being a huge Resident Evil fan, I played Resident Evil 1, then Director's Cut, then Resident Evil 2, and then Resident Evil 3, of course. And um, I was huge. I was like a massive Resident Evil fan. So big. Like for my GCSEs when I was 16, uh, I was taking my GCSEs. The thing that I wanted more than anything, like, you know, like sometimes your parents say, oh, if you get good grades in your GCSEs, we'll get you a present. Yeah, uh, yeah, kind of as encouragement to kind of study and stuff like that. The only thing I wanted as a present for my um, for doing well in my GCSEs was a model from Japan of Jill Valentine from Resident Evil Three and oh, the Drain Drain Demos thing as well. They had like these models of them, uh, like action figure type thing. And I was like, I really want this. I was like, I know it's pointless. I know it's not a game. I know it's not something I'm going to constantly use. But I just, you know, as as a treat, as a one off thing, I was like, I really want that. I loved. Loved Jill Valentine so much. She was like my favorite gaming character at the time. Still is to a degree as well. Um, so I kind of got, you know, I got that. And I, I have no idea where that's gone now, unfortunately. That's uh, been lost to time. Oh, no. um, yeah, many moves later. I don't know where that's gone. Uh, but so I was huge, huge Resident Evil fan. And I started to figure out from gaming magazines and kind of early gaming websites, uh, like GameSpot and stuff, that there was going to be a new Resident Evil game, but that it was going to be exclusive to the Sega Dreamcast. And I was like, oh, I've not really heard much about this. You know, I'm, I'm a PlayStation guy. I don't really know much about, you know, I've never really played a Sega console. I didn't really know much about it. So I kind of kept a, an eye out on it and they started to release screenshots. And I was like, wow, this looks like incredible. Like it's proper 3D, had proper lighting and stuff. You know, it looked great. And I was like, ah, and it's exclusive to the Dreamcast. So the only way I'm going to get to play it is if I get a Dreamcast. And uh, I think it was when they released the first videos online of it and I saw it in motion and I was like, yeah, I, I, I have to have this. Like, I, I need to play the next Resident Evil game. 
so for my 16th birthday, I basically convinced my mum uh, to get me a Dreamcast, and we would work. By no means are we were we rich, you know, like we were we were comfortable. But my mum bought, like she'd said, okay, well we can get you a secondhand Dreamcast. Um, cool. So we did that months ahead of my birthday. I'll point out we got it. We we went to a secondhand store in Lincoln, which is where I'm originally from, and we got a Dreamcast secondhand with a secondhand copy of Crazy Taxi and Power Stone because at that point Code Veronica hadn't actually come out yet. Um, I think it came out. I think we got the console in April, and I think it came out in like May or June. Code Veronica, um, and my birthday was in August. Anyway, so we got it, and my mum put it in her wardrobe, and she said she'd order Code Veronica when it come out, and all this kind of stuff. So, fantastic, great. Um, I started buying Dreamcast magazines, and they had like a demo of Code Veronica on one of them. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was like, uh, Mum, I really need to test out the console just to see if it works. You know, it's second hand. <laughs> I should really, I should really try this out. Uh, so I got, I, you know, she was like, oh, fine, fine. Okay. So, and I played the Resident Evil Code Veronica demo, which sold me on even more, but then I also, of course, sneakily got a bit of timing on crazy taxi and power stone. Um, yeah. Why not? Why not? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think I did this a couple of times. In fact, I don't know why my mum let me do this more than once. Like I, I, you know, once is kind of like a bit cheeky, but a few times I think she just knew that I was really into it. So, um, because I remember showing my friend Steve, who does Streamcast years with me now. Uh, I remember him coming over once, and we were taking out of my mum's wardrobe and playing like Crazy Taxi and stuff with, on it for a couple of hours. But anyway, so yeah, that's how I got the Dreamcast. It was Resident Evil, and it was then through that, and then getting to play games like Crazy Taxi, and you know, and these were games I these are the kinds of games I'd never experienced before because I'd completely been blind to Sega for years and mm-hmm. years. You know, other consoles have arcade games, sure, but nobody does arcade games like Sega does. And so I'd completely been, you know, I'd, I'd been blind. I didn't even know that these kind of games existed. And I was like, what the heck? And of course, I was buying official Dreamcast magazine because I was getting so into it. I was finding out about games like Shenmue that were coming to the system later. I was like, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, and that's kind of, yeah, that's how I got into Dreamcast. So much so that I started writing for a fan site about it as well. Um, I got that much into the Dreamcast. It was like my, I mean, it was, and then of course now still is my my favorite console. So, I've always found it's it's amazing with Sega consoles how much when when it all clicks and you buy into what they're they're offering you. So many people the same thing. It captures the imagination, and it almost becomes more than a console. It sounds really cheesy, I think, but it does. It becomes more than a console. It becomes a way of gaming. I mean, I love. I've, I've been lucky that I've gone through Sega my entire sort of console career, for want of a better expression. But to come into it from a different angle like that, it's very interesting to hear that before you'd obviously played the Dreamcast, that that whole world was you know, it was wasn't there. So to experience that world, especially later on when you're a bit older as well, and I think in some respects appreciate it more. Does it? Do you think that played a sort of a, an impact on on how much encapsulated you in into obviously inspiring you to going on to right you know to be involved in Dreamcast fanzines etc yeah i think absolutely it was uh, it's that it's that turning point in your life isn't it you you kind of late on in adolescence you you know 15 16 years old that's the kind of time that you start to really develop a sense of who you are and what you like and you know what your what your what your thing is in life and and uh, you know you get very easily influenced by the things that you love at that at that age and a lot of people who pick things up at the age of 16 are then huge fans of them still down the line at 30, 40, because they, you know, that's the, 
you're so impressionable at that age. And I think doubly so when I was 16, because it was the early days of the internet. And there's this whole new way of communicating and finding things out. You know, we had gaming websites for the first time. You could very slowly download trailers for games and watch those. And um, you could go on message boards and chat rooms and stuff and talk with other people. Because, of course, you could talk with your school friends about the Dreamcast and stuff. But the likelihood is, especially with the Dreamcast, that was, you know, a very low selling console, there would be maybe only a couple of people in your whole school that would have a Dreamcast because, yeah. mm. you know, it just wasn't it just wasn't something people waited for the PlayStation 2 or they had a PlayStation were happy with that. Um, so there was only, you know, you couldn't talk to a lot of people about it. And I don't I think there's only one other person I knew in my school who had a Dreamcast. So being able to then go onto the Internet and find all these other people who thought exactly the same way as you that like, you know, they, they also love the Dreamcast. Uh, you know, that's how I came across the fan site that I wrote that I wrote for, you know, because it was somebody else who was my age who loved the Dreamcast and was setting up a website. And I was like, sure, yeah, I'll I'll come and talk about the Dreamcast a lot and write about it. And because I because I, I bloody loved it. And um, yeah, it's, it's definitely that time in your life. I think that really that it was that time in my life, at least that really kind of cemented the Dreamcast as this big thing in my life. So then working backwards a little bit obviously you've got the dreamcast so then did that sort of introduce you to the the previous consoles the saturn the mega drive etc do you know what no um so i i did uh, later on in life i did get a saturn but then i sold it fairly quickly because i was at a point in time then where all the new stuff was what i enjoyed so i, I think i can't when i got it but i was much more into the more modern stuff and yeah. only recently that I've started to go back. So I got a Mega Drive a year ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and I've played Mega Drive games like on the, you know, on the um, collections that you get on the PS3 or on the PS4. Yeah, yeah. And I've got the one on the Switch. And I love Streets of Rage. I love the old Sonic games. There, there are loads of, you know, the of Mega Drive games that I really enjoy. But I came to them much later. And um, the reason for me getting the Mega Drive was because I backed um, Paprium. Oh, yeah, yeah. Only just come out within the last few weeks. Um, problem being now is I do have a Mega Drive, but none of my TVs have SCART anymore. Um, oh, no. So I've, I've, uh, I'm waiting for a CRT TV to arrive. Uh, it's got stuck with Hermes somewhere, which I'm very upset about. So I haven't been able to play that yet. But, um, and I also, literally yesterday, uh, bought a Saturn. Um, oh, really? a, a, mod, a modded Saturn so I can go back and play all of the games that I missed because you know there's there's games on there that I keep hearing about and seeing like um, Panzer Dragoon and Panzer Dragoon Saga yeah. of course and Knights I mean I've played some Knights because you know that's been ported to nearly everything at this point um, yeah. so I have played, yeah. played Knights uh, but Burning Rangers and um, uh, and I really want to play Deep Fear because it's a Resident Evil like game that I've not played. And so I want to play that. So, yeah. So I, at the time, it didn't really get me into that kind of stuff. But as I've got older, I've started to appreciate um, more retro stuff. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm now I'm going back <laughs> and doing all of that. So. No, it's really interesting to hear that. And interesting to hear you only just picked the, the retro stuff up. It's, mm. um, it's certainly a very different experience to what. I went through growing up with it so i'll be very interested uh, say we talk it down the line about some of those experiences especially with the saturn because i think the saturn's got a library that's underrated yeah actually in in, in some respects i'll be very interested to hear your thoughts when you've got that saturn and you've played through some of those games i think you're in for an absolute treat with the saturn i really do yeah i mean i've, I've been talking to i don't know if you know um the sega holic on twitter 
Um, yeah. He's the person who's kind of made me really want to pick up the Saturn. He's hel- helping me out with it. He's uh, He's got a, a modded Saturn as well, and he's copied his SD card for me with all the games. So I'm getting basically all the games that he has and all the ones he recommends. So um, he's been like a huge part in me wanting to try all these games out and they always sound and look so phenomenally good when he describes them so i'm very excited it's all arriving tomorrow and i've got the weekend off from work so i'm gonna set it up and i'm just gonna do that all weekend uh as well as um you know try and do other guest stuff i guess because i have to also eat and whatever but uh (laughs) maybe i'll just play (laughs) games all weekend we'll see no that that sounds like a perfect weekend sit down play the saturn and maybe eat excellent maybe (laughs) what you want on a week what you want on a weekend So I'm going to sort of move us on a little bit. And you've already sort of talked a little bit about sort of seeing Shenmue in magazines, of Mm. course. What were your first impressions of seeing it in those magazines at the time? It was was unlike anything that I'd seen to that point. And I think one of the one of the points that I often make about Shemu, because we talk about Shemu quite often on Dreamcast years, because yeah. we've got Rich who's incredibly passionate about that game. He loves it. He got a forklift license off the back of, you know, loving Shemu. It's lapsed now, as he's told us fairly recently, but you know, he did do that. But then we've got Steve on the opposite side who can understand why it was influential, but doesn't think it's a great game. Um this isn't the best place to say that. So please don't go, Shenmue fans, please don't go and like have a go at Steve because he's lovely. <laughs> it's, not, no, no, it's just no. not for him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it gets bombed on Twitter now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like, it's like the Shenmue version of doxing, isn't it? Like <laughs> throwing yeah. something in the bus on Shenmue Dojo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, oh dear. Poor Steve. No, he's, he's lovely. He does understand what makes it great, but he's not a huge fan. But um, yeah. it's... That's um, fair enough. Yeah, um, it's yeah. Like I've said on the Dreamcast years before, it's it looked un- unlike anything I'd ever seen, and the fact that it was set in the real world is probably the thing that appealed to me most. Because I, up to that point, most games that I played were like you know they were fantasy in some way. There were things that you could never hope to even think about doing in your life because either they didn't exist because it's you know something completely made up or it's so out out there that you just would never be able to do it and all of a sudden you are just walking around the streets of a japanese town i mean sure it's in the 80s and unless we had a time machine we, we, we couldn't actually do that now but it's it's a real place that existed and it's the real weather that happened at the time and it's you know people who you could easily believe were real and doing real things and going about their daily lives and you know the rpgs kind of do that but they're always kind of fantasy slanted whereas this was not and it was like a little glimpse into a foreign place at a time that's you know that's that's now passed and it looked amazing like the screenshots of that game and the videos that you would see of it it was you know you see things now and people are always like oh you know games are going to be moving towards photorealism and every time you see a new console release and there's all these amazing looking games and that was Shenmue at the time that was what Shenmue was it was this amazing looking um game that just lo- looked unlike anything else because it was so well done and um yeah it just captivated me because it was because of its normality I suppose that's why it captivated me yeah, and lots of people say that actually it's it's in the mundane in Shenmue mm-hmm. that you find find the joy, find the solace in it. It's, it's it's interesting, like you say, you can go around, you can do what you want. Yeah, and it is it is that glimpse into 
another culture, mm. another life. And I think that's why it appealed to so many people, especially in the West, who weren't probably weren't as exposed to that Japanese culture at the time because it wasn't as, as accessible as it is today. You've got to think the yeah. internet was in its infancy. Internet video back then, you, you'd been sat there for hours waiting for a, yeah. for a download to come down and you'd probably be entertained by the dial-up um, tones while you're at it sort of thing. Yeah. So I, I think it definitely appealed in that sense. And I think as well, it's, it's because you can lose yourself in that, in that world. Mm-hmm. And no, no game did that before. I don't, I don't think. I, th- I mean, you look at games like Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time. As you say, it's set in a fantasy setting. Yeah. Great game, superb game. Recommend it to anyone. But it, I don't. Shenmue was different. It stood out because, as you say, it looked real. The graphics were, at the time, unprecedented, and I still think sometimes hold up today quite nicely, given yeah. the age of the thing. Yeah. And then, and then that's that's without even going into the story itself. Well, yeah, and I mean the story is great. I mean, before you talk about the story, though, I mean the, the it's the level of detail I think that was most impressive because you know, fair enough, you didn't get really a sense of that so much in screenshots at the time. But when you actually got to play the game, the fact that you could practically go anywhere, open anything that was in the place, you know, you go around Rio's house and open all the drawers and see what was in them. Um, and you know it was it, it was it was mundane but because it was such a you know it's this new place I mean I I mean I don't know this might just be me being weird but I I have a thing where I I, I always think about you know like buildings that you can't go into in real life and you have yeah. a, what what's in there you know I I can't go in because polite society says that I'm not allowed to go into that place because it's not mine I don't I don't own it I've, I've been not told I can go in there but if I could, I'd go in and have a look around and see what was in there just because I'm curious. And Shenmue kind of scratched that itch because you could go to all these places and just have a, have a look around. And it, it paid off to do that because, you know, you'd you'd see something interesting or you'd um, you'd find out something from somebody, you know, if you were talking to somebody. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of little secret things that are there that are there for you to find, but they're just, you know, because it's so detailed it would take you forever to to find them and that's really cool to me um as somebody who who likes to nose around other people's places i suppose um no it's that sense of freedom isn't yeah, it yeah it's, it's that sense of freedom just to have that and it wasn't done in games before really to have to right. just sort of strolling along de Vuita and think do you know what i'm going to go in that shop over there or i'm going to go and have a look in that jacket shop and you could do it Mm -hmm. and you had the freedom just to go and do what you want and pace it how you wanted it was you look and you look obviously modern trends in gaming now and you you can do pretty much what you want in a lot of the open world games but Shenmue was the first game to I think empower you to do that Mm. yeah absolutely so it's and then obviously the storytelling Mm. (laughs) which we haven't we haven't really talked about I think and Tell me if you agree or not. I think at the time as well, you look at the cinematics in the game and the way it was presented in terms of this big epic saga, the music, the atmosphere, the sh- the, the cinematic shots, it all just stood out as something amazing. Yeah, absolutely. It was... Um, yeah, it was, it was storytelling in a way that like you say it's cinematic it was very i mean it was cinematic mixed in with the mundane of having to just run around and 
and find things and wait for things to happen because you know that was that's a big part of, of Shenmue there's the waiting and the looking and finding things but it was it was mixed in with this grand it was quite a grand story it's this you know it's it's a revenge story it's it's it starts with the you know with Rio's father being murdered and you then have to go and you know find out you know who it was where you can find them you know going and finding all these people who can kind of give you extra clues and then going down to the docks and um you know getting into these big brawls and you know it, it was it was so exciting but it was just even the little bits of story in between you know it's the quiet moments with Nozomi and um you know getting to know different characters and getting to know the residents of the town and uh what they thought of each other and what they you know it, it was it was great it was it was a storytelling that was both cinematic and grand but also very down to earth and um it, and it really did hold your interest because it was almost i don't know it was kind of i don't know if you'd say it's soap opera-ish but it, you know it, it was kind of getting to know all these other little side characters like you know uh is it mayumi who you yeah with the kitten yeah is that whole side bit um even even to the the tiny little quest you do like trying to help the old grandma find the right house and you know the, the voice acting apart from a few standout performances was not great in English. I mean, I don't think anybody could argue that the voice acting in that was 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 amazing aside from certain characters. Um, but even so, having that voice acting, having these people talk to you properly and you know deliver these lines again, we we were very much in the infancy of of games that had full voice acting at that point. Um, and that was, I mean, I think Sonic Adventure was the first sonic game that even had voice acting and even that wasn't fully voiced and then we had all of a sudden we had shemu which was this fully voiced uh you know huge story-based game and all the people you could go and find would talk to you and tell you stuff and uh interact with you in some way and that in itself uh, was great storytelling to me yeah absolutely and it it, it, it stood out because of it because you could go and, and also you go and talk to these characters and they wouldn't give you the same line every time. Yeah, exactly. You get you get a variation of of different bits and pieces. They might tell you one piece of information one day, but if you're not there at a certain time, they mm. won't tell you that bit of information. So then you have to go right and go and look somewhere else. And it almost it encouraged you yeah. to get lost in it. For, that's the only way I can describe it. It encouraged you to take your time, get lost in the world and really engage in what it was trying to do. Yes, I, I completely see why it's not for everybody, because there are moments in the game which I think some would find ponderous, mm -hmm. to be to be fair. But I think if it's it's one of those games, Shenmue, that I think if it captures you, much like Sega consoles, actually, like we were talking about before, I think mm -hmm. if it captures your imagination and captures what it and you get what it's trying to do, it's one of those games I think resonates and will continue to resonate for a long, long time because of what it was doing, I think. Yeah, yeah definitely agreed with that. And um, it's why people who played it on the Dreamcast originally are probably now still the biggest fans. And it's very difficult for people to break into Shenmue now because it, it kind of held, it held something back then that not many other games had. And yeah. of course, games have moved on since then. There are huge story-based games um you know that that have probably equally good stories and equally good worlds to 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 visit um but back then that was a, that was an oddity that was not the norm and so if you discovered that and you found that then that's something you wanted to stick with continue follow the story of these characters that you'd got invested in 
And that's why people waited 18 years for Shemu 3. You know, um, the, the people who backed that game by and large were the people who were playing the original game back on the Dreamcast back in the day. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, that sort of, it, it fed into that euphoria when Shenmue 3 got announced, which we'll, we'll touch on in a minute. Mm. So comparing Shenmue 1 to Shenmue 2, obviously Shenmue 1 is very, you know, very small world, very homely world. You get to know Rio, you get to know his friends, you get to know his family, mm. you get to know the town. So stepping from Shenmue 1 to Shenmue 2, was it a culture shock for you? Yes. And that's because that's that's what Yu Suzuki wanted, right? That's the whole yeah. the whole point is that you'd gone from, like you said, this small town where everybody knew who Rio was, and Rio Rio knew nearly everybody apart from the you know the new people who'd stepped in and were messing about with the with the place, like Landy, of course. Um, but it was you know it was it was a complete culture shock because, as you say, you you go into this place where you know absolutely nobody. You've spent countless hours in Shemu one getting to know all the streets like i maybe not so much now but back then i i knew where everything was i didn't need a map i could just go okay i need to go to the barbershop right i know where that is and and run to the barbershop because i knew exactly where it was in the world um i and then suddenly you get thrust into hong kong and you're like oh this th- this is huge like there's so much going on here where do i start and it wasn't even like you know it was even the first section um what was the first section called? So you go to Kowloon later, but the first section is just, is it just Hong Kong? I can't remember. It's Wan Chai, Hong Wan Kong, Chai. yeah. Yeah, that's it, Wan Chai. Um, that was a big place all on its own and so many yeah. side streets and little alleys and stuff. And, you know, they make a big deal of it as well because one of the first um, things that happens is that your bag gets stolen and you and kind of find the person who steals it and chase them through alleyways and stuff. And it's, it, it, it kind of... It, the story leads you down these alleyways and goes, Hey, look, there's all this stuff going on down these different alleyways and different places you can find. And, um, you know, different people to speak to and all these shops and cafes and hotels and, you know, yeah, Shenmue had that, but it had it on such a small scale as opposed to this. And it was, I I was lost for so long. It took me so long to figure out where everything was in that game. And just as I figured out and had a grasp on everything, it kind of sends you to Kowloon and I'm like, ah. <laughs> um, but it was, it was brilliant. Like I can still picture a large chunk of, of the, the opening area, you know, like the plaza and the yeah. cafe by the plaza and the side streets. And there was um, the, the hotel that you go and stay at, which is, you know, it's just such a, it is a culture shock. It's totally different from where you've come from, but it's so full of life and so full of detail and, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it 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 was better, even because you were experiencing exactly what Rio was experiencing, which was, you know, this. Could, you know, in the first game, you were experiencing as a game. This is a new thing, and you've got this big open world to explore. Uh, but the thing is, it was it wasn't new to the character. They they knew where they were. Whereas when you go with Rio to Hong Kong, he also has no idea where he is and what's going on. So it, that in itself kind of makes the whole game it repeats that experience that you had of going wow you know this is huge and weird and you get to experience that along with rio this time which is great yeah i i completely agree with that it's like when you step off the boat for the first time you've got to think it comes with this big grand entrance the music's playing you start seeing shots of hong kong wan chai and you step off the boat and you're immediately greeted within what 
couple of minutes you've got all these people hounding you for you know photos tours you sort of sat there but it's almost overwhelming isn't it you're like whoa hang on a second what's going on here and it's a testament to the world building in that game that it could capture that feeling of being you know, feeling overwhelmed feeling lost and going on that journey with rio i think it that's that kind of storytelling for, for me personally there are there's a handful of games that have done that for me personally and i, I don't know about you in that respect mm. yeah it's it's very rare that a, a game tells the story that well and places you in because a lot of games that want you to feel what the character is feeling will make the character a blank slate and will have them as a mute character or they'll just be so um you know they won't have much of a personality and and i think some might argue that rio has a a, a slim personality you know he's got (laughs) very much he's very much focused on what he wants and he doesn't have much outside of that apart from capsule toys um that he's interested in but you know he's still a character of his own and they do really well to make you invest in that and uh, you know it, it that that's the testament of of a good storyteller i think is or a good story being told is that you can invest in a character that you're playing even though you maybe don't always um relate exactly to to them because you know they are their own they're, they're their own person and there's only a handful of games that do that the most recent one for me being last of us part two um that does that very well but yeah jemmy 2 for sure is one of those yeah, I, I'd agree with that, and I, I, I enjoyed Last of Us too. Actually, I thought it, um, I know it's controversial. Mm. <laughs> probably get probably get slated for it, but that's another game I actually thought for me told a really good story, and I, I felt invested in it. Yeah, and, and and what the characters were going through, but that we could talk about all that all day. Uh, oh yeah, that's a different podcast. That's uh, that's the Last of Us dojo. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, Okay, so, we, so you've played Shenmue 2 for the first time. Mm-hmm. You've got to the end. So um, what did you make of the, sort of the last disc and, and the end of Shenmue 2, obviously, before we knew we were going to end, end up in this 18-year hiatus? It was. So that last disc is like it was out of the blue con- compared to what we had for the whole of the game, which was this, you know, it, it had its moments of quietness, of course, when you were just exploring or doing a job to make some money or whatever, but... It was it was a bit of a thrill ride, right? Like you had the sections in Kowloon where you're handcuffed to Ren and like jumping out of buildings and like these amazing spectacles, and then to completely like chuck that or not chuck it away, but to to kind of eschew that and then go just on a, on a nice quiet mountain walk um, and have a chat for, for like, like it was like a couple of hours at least. It was a really long section of the game, yeah. And then it was it was a really it was a brave thing to do. It was especially in hindsight, considering that is the last that we saw of Shenmue for for some time, and a lot of people thought that was be the last that we ever saw of it. Um, it was a very brave way to end it, and I think it really worked really well. Like that was that was quite emotional. It was an emotional final disc. Finding that cave, finding the giant representation of the mirrors. Um, you know the the conversation that you'd have with Shenhua along the way, and and, and what everything meant, and uh, even finding out. I think you find out in that, that last bit when you see her house and the tree outside it, and you find out that's where the name Shenmue comes from. Um, you know the whole name. There's the Shen Shenmue tree. Is that right? Am I thinking that correctly? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's been a while since I've played that last disc, but 
it's uh, it's it's it, it was amazing. It it completely subverted your expectations of what how that game should end. Like everybody was thinking, yeah, it's going to be like uh, this big action scene with Landy, and you're going to have to do all these QTEs, and you're going to have to like chase him and do stuff. And of course, you do a little bit of that in in towards the end of the game, but to then completely end it with uh, emotion rather than action was very very good and it and it kind of speaks back to the fact that it's such a character based game um and i think i loved it i really did love that yeah i i i think i would echo all those sentiments actually i didn't appre- appreciate the fourth disc until i was a bit older mm. i was i think i was 14 when shenmue 2 came out so i mm. i only told about 18 19 that i picked it up again and i played through it and i remember just sitting there and it was like a light bulb moment for disc four mm-hmm. i just got it and and got what it's trying to do and you, you i completely agree it was it was very bold very mm. very bold for the mm. game considering the massive action sequence on the rooftop yeah yeah which was which was great and it was uh, you know that's what people were wanting but i think people wanted more than that and um and then rather than give them more of that they gave them something they didn't know that they wanted and that that's i think to a degree that's something to do with japanese storytelling as well because there's a uh, an anime that does something very similar with the end of it which i, I don't know if you've see, ever seen neon genesis evangelion no i haven't unfortunately and I won't spoil it incredibly, I'm sure. I mean, it's a very old anime at this point, so spoilers will be everywhere. But, you know, it ends, the the last episode, the last couple of episodes are completely based in the main character's head, in his thoughts. So it's this huge action-based uh, anime, like it's robots fighting aliens. It's like this huge, like over-the-top, amazing anime. But then the last two episodes, they scale back and there's stuff going on outside of this guy's head but the entirety of the of the last two episodes, I can't remember if it's one or two episodes, but the entirety of that last part of the whole anime ends the show completely is in his head. And he's thinking about things and he's mulling over what's happened up to this point and, you know, how it's led to this and what's going to happen now. And it's so introspective and it works so well. However, it became popular in the West and then they, they made a movie where they just showed exactly what was happening outside of his head. Um, like they did like a big action movie to show the ending and that kind of spoiled it a little bit because it it works so well uh, not everybody liked it I think it is I, I you know I, I showed it to a bunch of friends and they loved it up until that last couple of episodes but I think that is it's a very much a, an eastern way of storytelling that perhaps doesn't translate so well into the west but for some reason for Shenmue it translated perfectly for most people I, th- I, I think I don't know of many people who did not like that ending to the second game and it was also you look you think about the cave scene itself mm. i mean that it's almost it's completely against the rest of disc four because all of a sudden you get the legend of the mirrors you get the floating sword and and the prophecy and it's like whoa hang on a sec what's going on here it all kicks off and then it goes that's the end yeah yeah <laughs> Like you can't um, leave it like this. Like, what, what happens uh, now? <laughs> that that played in to the eighty to to people wanting a Shenmue three. Yeah. Um. Obviously, when Shenmue two was originally made, we didn't know what was happening in terms of. I know it had been green. There was a green light on it at one point, and then it got pulled or whatever. But did you sort of stay in touch with the Shenmue franchise before Shenmue three was announced, or was it one of those games that? We almost sort of looked at and go, I'd love it to happen. I'd love a sequel to happen, but it probably won't. 
and sort of accepted it almost. Mm. I think that um, there were probably times, I mean, 18 years is a long time, isn't it? It's, it's a heck of a yeah. long time. There were points and there were probably some years where I just didn't really give it much thought or I kind of thought, hey, you know, it would be nice if we saw Shenmue, but it doesn't like it's going to happen. Um, you know, I bought the port for the Xbox, which is only a year or two after the Dreamcast one because yeah. um, I was so into it and played a bit of that. And I think I'd, I'd go back every now and again and play Shenmue. I think at one point I bought the Japanese version of the original game pretty much just so that I could play the game with Coca-Cola machines instead of Jet Cola. Um, and with the Japanese voice track, of course, um, but just to get that. And um, so, you know, the, throughout those 18 years, there was still an element of me thinking about Shenmue and still wanting to play it. And um, and of course, that also meant that I was thinking about what, what was going to come next. And, you know, there was for a long time, nearly every E3 there was, and I think maybe not nearly, but I think it was every E3, there was a rumor yeah. that the Shenmue 3 was going to come out and um you know sometimes it would be some of the big places would would say you know like you might get GameSpot or Eurogamer going oh there's a rumor that Shenmue 3 is going to be coming out and it was either you know when when those years came around where people were starting to take it seriously you were like oh oh could it happen and of course nothing came of it I think one year it was Shenmue Online that came out yeah. and uh, yeah. it was like oh okay um but I, I I just remember there was always uh places such as Shemu Dojo because I remember going in kind of every so often I'd go back to places like Shemu Dojo and have a look and was like is there anything happening and I'd you know I'd look through the archives and look at the latest news on there and be like is there anything coming is that like does do these people know you know do the fan sites know are they are they not telling us something like is it happening <laughs> so I'd, I'd check every so often and I'd be like ah damn um so I, I I held out hope for a long time and um I think just before they you know actually got announced in the in the last in those few years before that i was ramping back up again because the rumors seemed to be building every year up until that point they were building up and building up it's like oh yeah somebody's going to do something uh it's going to happen oh somebody's bought the rights or sega's going to pay to you know to to redo it or uh and then eventually it became like oh you suzuki's looking into like crowdfunding it and i was like oh is that going to work i don't know if that's going to work and lo and behold it happened you know (laughs) It and where were you at oh. the moment that happened? Um, I can't. Do you know what? I it's it's one of those moments I can't remember exactly where I was. I I think I was in front of a computer, um, because I remember watching it very shortly after it was announced. Um, because I've got I've got a friend, uh, my friend Sean, who is as much into Shemu as I am. He he loves it. He he used to up until a few years ago. He used to play replay the first game every year. So he would he would start it on that day, um, basically every year, and it was a good it was a a good number of years that he did that for. And he didn't he didn't always finish the game, but he would try and start it. He would try and go through it. He'd complete it some years. Some years he would you know other things would happen. He wouldn't be able to. But anyway, he he told me he was like, have I, have you seen the Sony conference? And I was like, no. And he's like, you need to go watch the Sony conference now. And I was like, okay. Um, and then I started looking at new sites as I was loading YouTube, and I was like, oh oh my, Like it's actually happening. Like I was really excited. And I, I think I watched the announcement like two or three times just to make sure I hadn't like missed it. <laughs> it was another Shenmue online or something that they were, they were trying to kick crowdfund. But um, yeah, that was crazy. I was, I was over the moon. I was so happy when they announced that. Like, like literally really, like really, really happy. I, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, not to the point of tears that came later, but um, I was very, I was very, very excited. 
yeah, I think I think it was the shock mm. because I, I don't, do you remember the forklift tweet the day before from Yu Suzuki? No, no, I don't. Was that so? He was teasing beforehand, was he? Yeah, the, the madman was teasing. <laughs> he um, he um, put out and he put out a forklift tweet. I think it was a day before because the mm-hmm. dojo forum blew up because of it. Yeah, and it obviously forklifts are synonymous with Shenmue, mm. <laughs> so it got that everybody talking in the in the community. And I've since have been told that Sony weren't too impressed <laughs> that no, he did yeah. that. <laughs> Um, but um, it was funny because um, Ryan Payton took the view that it was a um, it was almost like a rallying cry to the community of like you need to watch this yeah like, yeah there's something something going on you you need to be ready sort of thing and lo and behold my word mm. I mean the E3 2015 was probably my favourite of all time take away Shenmue three <laughs> you put that into the mix and it was it was something else and I just remember I, I stayed up and watched it and. I remember sitting there in utter disbelief for about a minute. Mm. And then I was, oh my God, you know, because the view I had on it, it was, I was like, I'd always wanted it. And then I'd have done anything to to get that game, but I'd almost come to the acceptance that it probably wouldn't happen. Mm. And then to have that, realized was was crazy and obviously the kickstarter broke all the records going in in seconds it it mm-hmm. broke kickstarter it yeah it was it was a phenomenal success the actual kickstarter itself um so i'm gonna sort of fast forward into the kickstarter now it's been finished i mean what were your views on it going to kickstarter what and what are your views on it now it's been finished so when it came to Kickstarter, I, I discovered Kickstarter, I think, around 2013, 2014. I can't remember. I don't know how old Kickstarter is now, but um, it was fairly early. It was not it was not new, but it was fairly early on when I discovered it. And I I've been a Kickstarter addict since then. And when I found out they were bringing Shenmue 3 to Kickstarter, I was like, hell yeah, I, I, I back things on Kickstarter all the time. I I think at this point I'm over 200 projects backed on Kickstarter. Oh, wow. I'm an addict to Kickstarter. It's it's like um, it's introduced me to board gaming because I, I like all these new board games are being produced on Kickstarter and some to do with games that I enjoyed. So I kind of backed them and got into board gaming through that. Um, and they had like obviously new games are being made. Um, and I was like, yeah, this is a great way to do this kind of thing. You know, if, if Sega aren't going to, do this because obviously they you know it's an expensive game to make and i think considering that they took the punt or took the chance on one and two and it didn't do anywhere near what they expected or needed it to do it was never fair to think that sega would ever do three um it just you know it it wasn't gonna work for them so you think that uh if you look at the figures for shenmue i don't think any sane um publisher would take that (laughs) take that on um, it just, you know, it's not something you could do. And it's not even a game that you could make on a small budget just because of the nature of the game that it is. It's not a small budget game. But to then go to Kickstarter to raise funds, I mean, yes, of course, they got money from Sony to do it. And of course, later they went with Deep Silver to publish. I'm sure they uh, kicked money into it. I mean, in fact, I'm 100% certain they did. And, uh, you know, the Kickstarter was pretty much, you know, of course, they, they raised a huge amount of money. And obviously, that went into the game development. But more than anything, kickstarter was to show that the uh 
the want for the game was still there, that the fan base was still there and wanted the game. Because if that Kickstarter had failed, then Shenmue would have gone down without a trade. Yeah. Nobody would have thought about it again. Yeah, but, definitely. You know, but the, that showed that there was the the hunger for that game still. The, the amount, like you said, the records that it broke, the amount of money that it made, people wanted Shenmue 3. Um, and uh, that showed it very much so, which then obviously gave confidence to other people to invest in it, to make it what it is. Of course, Epic invested as well, didn't they? Because it, it came exclusively to the Epic Store yeah. PC, which is a whole different um, conversation to have there. But anyway, it's you know, <laughs> it, it, it gave people the um, uh, the confidence that they needed to go ahead and make a game like Shenmue Three. So I think it was an inspired choice to do it through crowdfunding because it, it it meant that they could see that their audience was there and they could they could interact with them as well and they could make sure that this was definitely something that was going to succeed before they even before they even started developing it which is great uh, yeah I'd, I'd agree i think there was a belief or quiet confidence behind the scenes that the kickstarter was always going to be a success i think that there are elements of it i think they could probably have done better in terms of communication, yeah. especially early on when there was rumors going around that Sony were putting in a ton of money when actually they weren't. Mm-hmm. And I just think there are certain things in there that you could have addressed at the time. But yeah. I mean, that's that's a whole different conversation. And then you fast forward to the rewards themselves. I mean, have you got all yours? Is the first question. Uh, yes, I do have them all now. I think the last one came in a couple of weeks, but a few weeks before Christmas. Yeah. So all here now. Yeah, I got them all. And what 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 do you think of them all? Being I'm, honest, I'm I'm so the ones I didn't go overboard, and there was there was a huge amount of tears and lots of different rewards. Um, I didn't go overboard with what I chose, mainly because I didn't have the money to. Um, I regret not getting the entire toy, uh, capsule toy collection. That's one thing I do regret because that looked great. I have one capsule toy, um, which I got the forklift Rio, which is the one that I wanted. So I'm really happy. Yeah, I was really happy with that. Um, but the, the 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 box with all of them in looks brilliant. Like the fact that they made it look like a capsule toy machine, so good. Um, so I, I I kind of regret not getting that, but I didn't have the money to spend on it. Um, so I got that. I got the art book, which is very nice, nice art book. I got the T-shirt, um, and then of course I got the game and stuff as well. And um, I don't know the, the the things that they could have done better are. Well, first of all, the thing that I think everybody knows that they could have done better is the slipcover. That was atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. And the fact that they then went and did a steelbook for somewhere else, it's like, you really should have done a steelbook for Kickstarter backers because that steelbook is beautiful. And at some point, I really need to find that steelbook. But it's uh, we got like a really terrible slipcover. Uh, like, it, what was it? It just, it just said like Kickstarter edition on it or something. And it was, it, it was so plain. It was blue for blue for playstation i think just said shenmue 3 case or so. i can't quite i haven't got it in front of me actually no, I really should. and the pc one was was the brown one on it yeah, that's right, um, that's the, right. The, the steelbook the steelbook yeah oh they're on ebay actually if you're yeah. after one they're really they're really really nice yeah have to have a look i love that, that steelbook they um they did a really good job on that yeah but it wasn't for the kickstarter unfortunately no, it's we, we, James and I have talked about the Kickstarter actually, and that I, I'd agree. I think, I mean, I didn't mind the slipcase, I was, but I do think it could have been better. Mm. Um, and I think, the, I just think the communication could have been better. There obviously there's issues around 
Kickstarter backers not getting the DLC and things like that, which which I think probably attracted ne- some negative press as well. Yeah. Whether it's deserved or not, I think it's down to the individual mm-hmm. more than anything else. Um, and then the big elephant in the room was the Epic deal. Yeah. And the way... I know Epic gets a lot of bad rep anyway, mm-hmm. but the way that deal was handled in terms of the PR around it, it, it put that it put Shenmue 3 on the back foot. Yeah, agreed, it did. I mean, the ins and outs of the deal, I mean, obviously it contributed money towards the development of the game because that's what Epic does and that's how they secure rights for a lot of games is to kind of, especially at the, at the point in which they they got that, exclusivity it was still while it was being developed so money was obviously put into the development of the game in order to get that and i have no problem with that and i was a playstation backer i didn't back for the pc so in a way my point is you know my my viewpoint is invalid anyway because i was never going to get it on the pc so i can't really comment too much on it but personally i I didn't see a huge issue with it myself the only issue i saw was in um the people who bought the physical copy and obviously it ended up being a code in a box and i think that that was wrong they they could have been well i don't know if it was a code in a box it would i don't i can't remember if there was a disc but i think you had to use that you had to use activate it and that should have been drm free like if you got the disc-based version it shouldn't have needed a platform to, to to you know to be used um it's only if you use the digital one maybe that's the case but i don't know it's it now it doesn't seem to matter as much because we're a year on it's on all platforms basically apart from xbox um so you can buy it on steam now i believe so yeah it's it's a it was a pain at the time and i agree you know the, the fact that the dlc didn't come as part of the package i ended up buying the dlc anyway haven't played it yet but um you know it's it, it sucks a little bit but also, you know, it's it's a game that costs a lot of money to make, and they had to they had to make more money than just the Kickstarter. They had to sell yeah. more than that in order to recoup some of the costs, which I don't think they actually ended up doing. From what I understand, I don't think it it sold incredibly well for them. Unfortunately, I, I mean, I think sales wise, it certainly didn't pull up trees. From what I understand, no, and but I I believe it did break even at least, which is good. Which is very good. I mean. As long as it did, as long as it didn't crash and burn, which is the the worst case scenario, because then there would be nobody wanting a fourth game, and I think it needs a fourth game. I think it, it needs a, it needs a fourth game, and, and it needs to only be one more game. Is my point of view on that? It 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 should end on four, is what I think at this point. But... I, don't, I don't know if they will. I think I mean it's a brave man to take it to a fifth. I will say I will say mm. that now, and this mm. is somebody who's probably heavily biased. Um, but sort of talking about Shenmue Three itself, yeah. Now, what I mean, we've sort of touched on the budget and the various other bits and pieces in the chat already. What were your sort of take on Shenmue Three? And by all means, be honest about it. If you, <laughs> I mean, I know it divides opinion. Yeah, I mean, being brutally honest, I've not got that far into it. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and not and not because I didn't like it or anything like that. It's because um, it came at a time when... So it came out in February 2000... Was it 2020 or was it 2019? November 19. 
Okay, came out. Completely wrong there. February. I don't know where I got February from. Um, so November two thousand nineteen. Um, that was when I was doing book stuff. So I was in, in yeah. right in the thick of writing the book. So I and also there was just tons of other games around that time, and I didn't know where to go and what to do. So I ended up. Um, I got the game, and of course I wanted to play it straight away. So I did, and I I played it on stream. Um, just because I wanted to give people, you know, what I thought about it. Um, I cried at the opening when you kind of step out and you, you this amazing landscape in front of you um, and the graphics were amazing and it looked great and I was really like I was like I cannot believe I'm playing a Shemu game like this is like absolutely crazy um didn't think this has happened um and I proceeded to play four hours of it and then I stopped and didn't go back to it um so and it wasn't because I didn't like it I enjoyed it I liked the village. Um, I didn't get like obviously four hours in, so I didn't get very very far into it. But I was able to do a few of the plot strands, and I was you know looking around the the place and investigating and doing some you know some training and things like that. So I was really enjoying it, doing some of the lucky hit stands, of course, because you have to do that. That's what you do. Yeah, um, and and just you know just kind of checking out the area. And I think I you know I got I got into the next part of the village. I believe that's a bit more. Like there's like marketplaces and restaurants and stuff in it, like in the huts. Um, so oh, yeah. Busty. So I got into that bit and then I kind of stopped and um, with every intention of going back. But then just stuff happened. So, you know, I got very busy doing the book and I got, you know, I, I think other games came out and I got busy playing those. And it just never was on the top of my list to go back to, uh, which is a shame because I do want to go back to it. I very much want to finish playing it because I think that I would enjoy it, but it needs because it's a Shenmue game, because it's quite a slow game. And this, and as far as, as I understand it, Shenmue 3 is is a very, very slow game. Um, it would need me to be in the right headspace to play it. Uh, like, I'd need hours at a time to sit and really sink into it. And at the moment, I'm lucky if I get, like, an hour or so where I feel like I can play a game. And when I do, it'll be Fortnite, because it's really easy for me to just turn on, shoot some things in the face, and then turn it off and go do something else. Uh, where Shenmue kind of almost demands an investment of your time you need to go and look at different like you need to go open drawers and you need to go and speak to people and take time to speak to people and learn new fighting moves and stuff so it needs me to spend at least two three hours each time i play it in order to get the most out of it and i just haven't had that so um well i have but when i have had that time it's gone to things like the last of us 2 and resident evil 3 in fact got some of that time as well so uh yeah there you go have not finished it <laughs> you'll have to let us know what you think when you do finish it yes interested to see what your take is on it i mean have you have you managed to avoid spoilers or anything like that i've avoided all spoilers i have avoided everything i don't know what happens i i know i obviously know there's a, a another town but that's you know we knew that from the kickstarter anyway so i i, I only know a few things and i think i i've heard like some people's complaints um about I mean, I don't know how much I can go into it on here. I'm guessing that by this point, everybody knows. But the the fact that you just generally fight the same people over and over again um, in the game. So it's the same boss fights, basically, um, consistently. So I know that, but I don't know anything else in terms of the story or anything like that. So, Okay, well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. It'll be very interested to see what you think of it when you get to that point. Because um, I do think, yeah, it does divide opinion, quite, quite honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's down to the individual. And I think whatever people think of Shenmue 3, I think we have to remember a few things that, A, it was developed on a budget that probably wasn't yeah, anywhere near what the first two were. Sure. They were coming in 
after a, a massive wait. And I do think there's expectation around anything that's had that kind of weight as well. Mm. Um, but I think it sets a platform for hopefully a Shenmue 4 in terms yeah. of what Shenmue 1 did for Shenmue 2. I believe Shenmue 3 can do that for Shenmue 4. Yeah, and I, I hope that's the case because I think it deserves... I, I mean, like I said before, I, I personally think that I I don't think there's going to be any way that they could stretch it beyond four, personally. I think that uh, although Yu Suzuki's always had these grand plans to make uh, like a lot of games, because there was what I can't remember, was it like 16 chapters originally that the game was going to stretch over? So there's, a, I mean, as far as Yu Suzuki's concerned, there's a, there's a lot of story left to tell. But I don't think he's going to be able to do exactly what he wants. However, he's opening different avenues, of course, which I'm sure we'll touch on later. He's opening avenues to tell different parts of that story. So what I'm hoping is he can be very, um, he can kind of think on the fly and, you know, pick out the bits of the story that are going to be good and put it into one final game. Because I think he's going to have to. I mean, and it's not just because there's not maybe going to be uh, the appetite there for a five. If, you know, if three only broke even four might not even do that so they need you know they need to they need to be smart about it they probably have to have crowdfund it again um they'll have to make it the end of the the uh, you know of, of, of the saga and 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 the real the, the realistic thing as well is that yu suzuki isn't getting any younger unfortunately so the, the amount of time that these games take to make i mean you know it takes time to fund it takes time to do pre-production the production itself takes years so you know he's not going to be wanting to make these games you know, while he's sat in a retirement home, is he? He's gonna he's gonna want to do them <laughs> while he's still compass mentis and able to enact exactly what he wants to do. And I think he would need to leave it for in order to do that. And um, you know, so that they actually are, 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 are viable to do as well. I think, but that, that's just my opinion. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I see where you're going with it. I, I know that it's been expressed through um, a couple of avenues. They don't want to go down the crowdfunding route again for various mm. reasons. I think. The term I heard used was that the Kickstarter was to reintroduce Shenmue okay. to, to the wider world. But whether whether they have to go back to it, I, I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. Given the given the press around the Kickstarter as a whole, I don't know if Shenmue as a franchise could justify going back to crowdfunding, let alone getting what they got last time. No, it's true. I mean, maybe they don't need to. Maybe they've got the. I mean, if, if Deep Silver, if Deep Silver is still their publisher, if Deep Silver believes it enough, then they will give it funding. Um, you know, it maybe won't be as much as they had for Shenmue Three, but uh, you know, they have the engine there now. So yeah, they do. They don't need to. That's a big development cost. Is is making that engine and making those assets, and they can reuse a lot of that. Because um, what I've what I've always thought as well is that I mean, we're getting on now, and I don't I don't know if they'll be able to do this but my thought was that if they release Shenmue 4 on the PlayStation 4 still then they would be able to save so much money on development costs because they wouldn't have to worry about next gen you know because they, they could if they wanted to of course they could do that but if they released it on PlayStation 4 I mean the PS4 probably has another good couple of years left in it before it you know with games being released for it so there's still a possibility but it would make sense in for, for money terms and also you'd have the entire franchise on one console you know you'd be able to play all four games on one console which would be pretty pretty cool and of course backwards compatibility anyway i mean the thing that they need to do really here to make more money and i know people have been clamoring for a version of three on on xbox and they if they release that or if they did some kind of partnership with microsoft to bring 
or to bring three to Game Pass, perhaps, at le- you know, at the very least, then that might give them some extra funds towards four as well. So the, there's there's all these different ways that they could that they could make it happen, I think, um, with or without crowdfunding. So I reckon eventually, and it does need to, I, th- I reckon they do need to bring it to Xbox. I'm not sure why they haven't at this point or why there's been no mention. Uh, there is a reason for it, and it's down to the exclusivity deal that was signed with Sony at the time. Did that not expire? Was that just was that not timed, or is that as I understand um, from talking to Cedric, um, it's still in it's still in at the moment. Okay, hmm. so that 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 is the honest reason as to why it hasn't come to Xbox is, is quite simply because it can't at the moment. And I know that yeah. Xbox turned it down at Shenmue Three when they were talking about bringing it back. Okay. So I, I don't know if there's any negative feelings towards Microsoft in that respect. I, I don't know. I'd be guessing. I couldn't say. But yeah. that, that's, at the moment, that's why. I mean, they, they'd be silly not to, if they did a four. They'd be silly not to develop it for the Xbox as well, purely because they they'd be losing custody. They'd be losing potential people buying it. You know, it's. Uh, I don't think that the difference between the consoles isn't great enough anymore that it would cost a huge amount of money to uh, to develop. On separate platforms so uh, they they need to so hopefully at some point when the when the uh exclusivity runs out maybe three will release alongside four on the xbox or something along those lines but it, it needs to happen at some point i think that'd be a good package three and four together actually on on an xbox that'd be good and like you say i think because it's developed in unreal the pc architecture and the xbox architectures aren't that too different yeah exactly so it, it shouldn't be too hopefully too difficult to put across and we'll, we'll see what happens so yeah. in a word before i move us on to sort of the wider shenmue franchise in a word do you think shenmue 4 will happen do i think it'll happen um yes i do okay excellent that was i like words. it <laughs> No, no, the answer the answer I was looking for. So going going in sort of the last Shenmue type question, because I want to talk about your other bits and pieces as well. Um we've obviously had the anime announcement, we've had the insane amount of merchandise come through. What mm. what what's your take on the Shenmue anime and sort of the strategy around that? What what do you think they're going for? Um it's an interesting one. I wasn't expecting that at all. Um, so when they announced it, it was like, okay, great. I, I, I'm excited for it. And I think it's Yu Suzuki's way of making sure that the story gets told whether or not Shemmy 4 gets made or whether or not, um, you know, Shemmy 4 is the last game if they do make it. And like we were saying before, there's, there's so many chapters that he's got. We've already missed one in the boat chapter, which never got released, of course. Um, that got skipped over when they made Shemmy 2. And that's apparently, from what I understand, that is getting put into the anime, I believe. Yes, as I understand it, they were certainly looking at the idea of putting it in, which would be great. would be awesome. And if they do that, then the possibility there is that they could put all this other stuff that they haven't put into the games. I'm guessing they've missed stuff elsewhere as well. And of course, if they make Shenmue 4 and then don't make anything beyond that, there'll be a bunch of stuff that... Yu Suzuki's come up with considering how many chapters there are that he'll then be able to put into anime form so I mean even if this is just going to be the story of one and two and they never go any further that'll be nice because it means it's a, it's a way for people to experience that story um, without having played the games because we're getting to a point now where, where a lot of people won't experience those games because they're old and because the control schemes are so alien to a lot of people it, yeah agreed 
getting to that point where newer gamers there are some people who always who will go back to old games and and find something they like in it but they you know as 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 trends and control schemes and graphics and stuff move on people just kind of leave those behind so it's a nice way for people to experience that story without having to play the game Uh, but my hope is that it's a way to expand on the story that we already have so that people who do love Shenmue still get something new out of it and it's also I think I think it's a way for Yu Suzuki to ensure that the whole story gets told even if he's never able to release any more games or if he's only able to release one more game so yeah and and that's without us talking about the potential market it could bring in mm, you're, you're, wide, you're widening it to anime fans who probably who may not be gamers for example they pick up the Shenmue franchise it's another avenue that way i think it, yeah. you, i think you're right if they tell tell the story but add in some of the bits that are missing it will appeal it might even bring some old Shenmue fans back yeah as well yeah because it's 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 new it's different and I think if if it's successful and it, you know it gets commissioned beyond sort of because at the moment it's 13 episodes it's gonna cover Shenmue 1 and some of Shenmue 2 so if they get commissioned for a second season and may, uh, maybe it gets to the point in Shenmue 3 where everybody's at the same point Mm-hmm. And I won't, won't spoil the end of Shenmue 3, of course, but we're all at the same point in the story. Yeah. And the anime has been a success over two or three seasons. It makes those conversations around the fourth game a bit more, a bit easier to have because yeah. you can go, look at the success of this anime, look at the success of this merchandise. Let's mm-hmm. all, you know, let's pull this together in in a game mm-hmm. and then and, and then take it from there. So, and I think it makes things more attractive to a publisher, hopefully. Mm. Yeah, it would be great if that's the case. Um, I mean, I know that there's a bit of worry over who is taking on the anime because I think that there's been some. I can't. I I, I don't know a huge amount about anime. Unfortunately, the the most recent anime that I've seen is Darwin's Game, which is brilliant. But I'm not like the biggest anime fan. I can't remember the, the guy who's doing the Shemu anime animation. He what was the thing that he did? What was the I can't remember now. It was it was it was a bit of a so from what I understand, it was this really popular anime. The first season was incredibly popular, and this new guy took over for the second season, and apparently it was worse than the first season. Um and so a lot of people, because this is the person who is doing the Shemu anime, they're a little bit worried um because of that. Um hopefully we don't have anything to worry about. Um, you know, hopefully it's just the fact that, you know, there's people who really enjoyed an anime and weren't too happy about a different person stepping in you know, for the second season, maybe that's it. But um, I know there are worries there. So that's my only concern at this point. Um, Also concerned that from what I understand, they have not reached out to Corey Marshall yet to do the English dub. And I'm hoping that they do do that. So I... It's funny you mentioned Corey because he retweets everything about the anime. Mm. So the rumours were that he's he's been... Yeah, he's been asked to do it, but if you're saying he hasn't been, it's interesting to see whether they're going to or not. I'd be also surprised they didn't reach out to Brianna Nickerbocker, who did Shenhua, because she's big in anime. Mm, Yeah, it would would be a very odd move, in my opinion, if she didn't come on board. If she she wasn't asked at least to do it, because she's a massive name in the anime circles. It would be daft of them not for both of those people. I mean, Corey Marshall is synonymous now with. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's what, that's what he does. That's what people know him for. I don't think he's actually even done much outside of that as a voice actor. I think he's done one or two other things. So people know him as you know, Ryo Huzuki. That's who he is. So if they didn't get him back in, 
so many of the fans would be disillusioned with it straight off the bat. So it'd be silly of them to do it. Now, you know, if if they if they don't get him in and they kind of pitch it as you know they're trying to go for something different, you know, maybe they get a younger voice actor in, something like that. I I could probably see it, but I would probably still not be very happy because I'm a big Corey Marshall fan, having not met him in person, but having like met him via the internet and spoken to him um, for a few hours and trading messages with him. He's a lovely guy and it would be really, yeah. really stupid of them not to bring him back in for it because it, it, not only is he the voice of that character now, he is also the one of the biggest Shemu fanboys you could ever meet. Like he loves yeah. those games. He loves them as games, not just because he's in them. <laughs> he just loves the games. So it would be so stupid for them not to get him in. So I really, really hope that they do. And he's part of the community. He's yeah. a big, big part of his community part. now. He's you know, him, um, Eric Kauso, um, Liesl as well. Mm. They've all embraced the Shenmue community. So especially for Corey, who is synonymous, as you say, with Ria Hazuki in The Voice. Yeah. I, I, I think it would certainly cause a lot of unrest in the community if he wasn't cast. I mean, it's not for me to turn around to the guys making it and say, you must cast Corey. But yeah. I really do think... I really do think he should do some continuity, and also it keeps it keeps the old fans on board. But mm. and, I, and I think Corey's performances are Rio are great. I, I love yeah. him as Rio. Yeah. So I, I think he bring a lot to the table in that respect, anyway. For sure, for sure. But fingers crossed, we shall see. I think it's due out this year. We'll see. Excellent. Um, I have to see um, where I don't know where they're gonna. Is it a Netflix thing or is it gonna be like a Crunchyroll thing? I don't know where. Crunchyroll, it'll be on. Um, and Ad- Adult Swim are picking it up. Nice. I have Crunchyroll, so I will be watching it on there for sure. <laughs> right. I'm gonna move us off of Shenmue now. Okay. I'm gonna sort of talk about your other projects a little bit because mm-hmm. you're not just Shenmue fan. You're a massive, massive part of the Dreamcast community. Mm. Um, I see you all over Twitter doing things and bits and pieces for the Dreamcast, Dreamcast Years, the podcast, Dreamcast Junkyard. I'm I'm reeling off a list here as long as you're on. <laughs> um, so what what got you involved with the Dreamcast community? What, what are you, you I know you said you started writing for a website when you're a lot younger. Mm-hmm. So what what really triggered it? It's it's weird. So yeah, I did I did do the fan site when I was younger, but that was it. It was like it lasted for maybe a year or something until the the Dreamcast was um, discontinued, and then we kind of all went our separate ways. And you know, because it was you know it was like sixteen, seventeen at the time. So I went to university at eighteen. Uh, you know, did my degree, went and got a job. Uh, you know, found a partner, settled down, all that kind of stuff. And that stuff just got left to one side. You know, I I, I loved the Dreamcast throughout that time always had one always had games i was have my original copies of shenmue still they, they've never left my collection ever um so i had all that stuff and it was not until 2018 that i started to think hey i i want to do some more stuff about the dreamcast like i'd had thoughts here and there um and i wrote a, an article i think in 2012 i think it was uh, called more than a dream which was for a mate's indie blog about indie games awesome um and it it was like you know he was just starting up and he i don't think it ended up going anywhere but i wrote this thing and i was like yeah i used to love you know i used to really love the dreamcast i mean i still love the dreamcast but i used to really really love the dreamcast and i need to get back to that and that kind of got me back into playing the dreamcast a bit and then of course that fizzled off because things kind of you know sometimes come in waves 
and um around about kind of 2015 2016-ish I I was you know I got into a, a point in my life where I'd got particularly depressed and anxious and was having all sorts of trouble uh, with my mental health and um, I spent a good long time being not myself you know not playing games not hating games but just not being in the right headspace to play games and and all that kind of stuff and uh, eventually I, I got help and I went to therapy and um, part of my therapy was you know what did you used to like doing <laughs> before you uh, you know when you were when you were younger and before you felt the way that you're feeling now it's like I used to play games I used to love the Dreamcast and I used to like writing and uh, my therapist is like well you know maybe you want to look at those things again and see if that's something you want to do and so I did and you know I, the therapy helped quite a lot and I and I got better and and uh, you know you, you never really quite kick um, mental illness because you know it's just something that's kind of with you but you learn to cope with it and you learn to to deal with it and I did and um I decided, right, you know what? I'm going to do something that I really love about something that I really love. I'm going to write a book. I'm just going to write, I'm going to write a book. And I was like, screw it. That's what I'm going to do. So I, in 2018, that's when I decided to do it. And um, I just just went for it. Uh, reached out to um, Casper Field, from, who used to be the editor of DC UK magazine. Oh, yeah. He, uh, I found out that he happened to live in the same city as me. Uh, we both live in Brighton now. And uh, he was like, yeah, sure, let's meet up. And because uh, I, I said I would like to interview you for the book. Uh, so I did. I met him in an ice cream parlor in Brighton, which is probably the most Brighton thing ever. And uh, <laughs> we spent like a, his lunch break um, at work. We spent just kind of I brought like loads of copies of DC UK magazine, which he'd not seen in years. And we kind of looked over them and he answered questions and stuff. And uh, I, I just kind of that was kind of how it started and decided to write the book. Um, I mean, big part of it as well, just to mention as well, is uh, Sandy Bry, who wrote a book called PlayStation Vita Year One. And I backed, oh, that, yeah, I backed that on Kickstarter, being the big Kickstarter person I am, as I mentioned. Um, and I got it and I kind of read it and I was like, this is a perfect format for telling the story of the Dreamcast. You know, it's this underdog console. It only lasted for three years. You know, being able to tell the story over, a, you know, three books, year one, year two, year three would be great so i reached out to sandeep and uh, he was like yeah that's a great idea do it <laughs> just just you know use the format do it and um so i did and that's kind of how i got started in the dreamcasting i suppose just by writing this book and I, nobody knew who i was nobody you know i didn't have anything else out really you know all i had was this old fan site where i wrote terribly because i was 16 and i really liked using exclamation marks and capital letters um <laughs> at the time and it's, it you know wasn't really the best uh, cv but I was able to start a Kickstarter and show people examples of what I wanted to do and people got behind it. And then, of course, the book came out and people saw what it was and, and you know, kind of the work that had gone into it. And that's when I started getting more into the Dreamcast scene. So, you know, I, I, I kind of uh, created the Dreamcast Years podcast. I uh, started chatting quite a lot to the guys at the Dreamcast Junkyard and eventually kind of was guesting on their podcast and that ended up me hosting the podcast um a lot of the time um because it's kind of an ensemble so i'm not like the de facto host or anything but i do host a good number of episodes these days so it's uh yeah i, I just kind of it almost i almost fell into the dreamcast scene just by virtue of deciding to write this book and uh, because it hadn't you know there was not really anything like it at the time um it, it, i just kind of met all these people as a result which is which is awesome yeah 
yeah and the book i mean i recommend it to anybody who hasn't read dreamcast years one at the moment because it's it's a i backed it on the kickstarter when i first saw it i was like, i'm having that straight away <laughs> and um it's yeah for anybody who hasn't read it make sure you if you can get copies can you still get copies of it so at the moment you can get a digital copy if you go to dreamcastyears.co.uk at the top there's a link that goes to the pledge manager for the second book campaign you can buy a digital copy of the first book from there which you can get pretty much straight away uh, but if you want a physical copy that's going to be a little while longer before those come out because i need to do a reprint of them so well anybody who hasn't read it get on that digital copy right away because it's a really good read and it, you can see the dedication and the, and the time and the effort that's gone into it. it's a fantastic book it's really really good i'm looking forward to dreamcast year two which we'll talk about in a minute but it's an interesting question obviously you're a self-confessed kickstarter nut mm. but what was it like being on the other side being the creator that was uh, do you know what I, so i went into doing the kickstarter thing thinking that i knew knew it all because i'd backed so many i was like i know what to, i know what to do you know i've, I've backed all these kickstarts i know what people want to see and i know um you know what they don't want from a kickstarter campaign so i, I had to make sure that the page was um, very detailed showed people what i was going to do gave them a very good idea of when they were going to get it and what it was going to be like because i've seen so many kickstarter pages that's like like just a few paragraphs of text and maybe yeah. one image and it's like you can't expect people to give you money based on that so i had to kind of do get artwork done in advance i had to get like uh, a sample copy of the book made like a 16 page sampler with yeah. you know examples of my writing and stuff in it so i did all of this stuff and i i know i was very keen on making sure that i updated very frequently so people knew that there were things going on and um that was great i was fine getting all set up what I wasn't prepared for would there was two things one was the amount of social media that I'd need to do in order to get people to come and look at it I'm not the biggest social media fan I find it really difficult um at times like I I love social media I love Twitter especially because you get to talk to people that you uh, that like the same things as you and you can see cool things that maybe you wouldn't get to see otherwise like people's collections and all this kind of stuff it's great but I find it difficult to like write out like posts and stuff about what i'm doing and uh, i i'm not really like a corporate kind of person so i find that really hard to do and i found it especially hard on facebook hate facebook with a passion um but i had to do it because people are on there you know and people who, who might enjoy the book are on facebook so i had to do it i found that difficult but what i also found difficult was waiting like there is a lot of waiting in a kickstarter campaign you set a goal you set an amount of time that it's going to take to fun so i think i set like a month so 30 31 days and the original campaign was six thousand pounds and at, at first i was quite confident that i would get that fairly quickly i was like yeah that'll, that'll go down fairly quickly um it took three and a half weeks of the four weeks to get to the goal so for three and a half weeks every day i would turn on the computer or, or kind of look at my phone and, and it was so stressful like thinking, oh my god, it's not gonna, it's not gonna get the the goal. I'm not gonna reach the goal. Like it's it's going too slowly. It's like it's not gonna happen. And all this work that I've done, all the work that I want to do, it's just not, you know, it's not gonna happen. Because the the reason I did Kickstarter is because I didn't have the money up front to be able to produce it on my own. Yeah. And course, yeah, I didn't know if people wanted it, and I wanted to make sure that it was a product that people wanted before I produced it. So I was kind of, for three and a half weeks, I was certain that people just, <laughs> not enough people wanted it. And it was just going to, that was going to be it. That was my dream of writing a book over with. 
and then all of a sudden obviously in the last week half week the last week and yeah last week really kicked into high gear and i actually you know reached the goal but those were those were the things that i was not prepared for is the amount of social media and the stress of waiting for things to happen yeah mad yeah, I can imagine it would have. Yeah, and that last week, because I, I remember it kicking off. I think I backed it I second or third week. I remember seeing it on somewhere on social media or in some Dreamcast. I can't remember where it was, you know. But then the quality of the first book is then testament because the second Kickstarter smashed its goal. Oh yeah, yeah, that was that was ridiculous like i i was um i was preparing myself for a, a repeat of the first kickstarter where obviously i'd have loads of people who'd back it because they liked the first book but the problem being the second book i i because it's a bigger book and there's more to it and i'm more, being more ambitious with it it's going to cost more so therefore it was the target was double like it was yeah. 6000 in the first campaign it was 12000 for the second book and so I thought you know this is going to take ages to get there it's a lot of money I'm asking for a lot of money am I asking for too much money uh you know I'd costed it all of course I knew how much it was all going to cost and that was it and uh I was like oh this isn't gonna and it it, it reached the goal in 64 hours and and then continued to rise and I was like what the heck <laughs> this is crazy that was really it was a big surprise that, that that happened and I was really really happy um to see it do so well and it's deserved to do so well because of the quality of the first book. Mm. Um, that that first book, I really, I think, it set that set you that platform, and it's yeah, the, the success of that Kickstarter is down to the quality of the first book. So I'm going to repeat this plug again: <laughs> download the digital copy because it is such a good read, and it's one of those books you can you can get engrossed in it, or you can read a section, come back mm. to it. It's honestly, it's very very well done and. The Kickstarter success for the year two is 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 just is a testament to the success of the first book. So, talking about year two, very 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 quickly. I don't want you to, don't want to spoil your Kickstarter updates or anything, but where are you in the process at the moment? So it's uh, I mean, as you know, last year was a shocker of a year. So it was yeah, it was um, it was an interesting time. I some work got done, but by no means as much as I wanted to just because of how things were going um so we have got things you know things are in the works we've got the artists working on uh, on art we've got a, a lot of submissions in already from the contributors because of course this time around there's many more people contributing so we've got basically everybody from the Dreamcast Junkyard is is on board and writing articles and retrospectives and I've got a bunch of other people as well so I've got a lot of those in which is great um, I'm starting to get interviews back in from people and there's a lot um i'm i'm hopefully i i don't i I don't want to say who yet but i hopefully have one more interview that's gonna come in which is gonna be a good one if i pull it off um so that's something to look forward to and i'll hopefully be able to announce that in the coming couple of months um but yeah it's it's uh it's coming together it's coming together it's um the thing is it's getting all the words together first because once the words are there and, and ready uh, then it can go to the designer and the designer can kind of slot it all in. Uh, so it's it's getting that part of it done first. And uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's the hard work, <laughs> is getting the words together. Excellent. And um, 
again, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait for it. It'll be a, another book that I will sit and, and read. Um, yeah, I mean, it'll be, I, great for, it'll be great for you guys as well because it's much more Shenmue content this time. I think yeah, it got yeah. all the mentions in the first book, but there's actual whole things about Shenmue in this yeah. book, which is great. There, there is. I'm, I'll be looking forward to reading that because I'm, I'm biased. <laughs> quite, course, quite well, honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also, you're a busy man in the in the Dreamcast world. Obviously, you have got your Dreamcast years podcast, which has just been picked up by um, Radio Sega. Mm-hmm. Uh, your first episode aired on Monday, if I'm right in my remembering through yep. checking the social media before. Um, right. How sort of very very quick? How did that come about in terms of starting the podcast and then obviously getting picked up by Radio Sega themselves? Well, the podcast itself it kind of started because um, I love talking about all sorts of games from all sorts of platforms I'm, I'm you know from the dreamcast on i pretty much picked up every console when it came out so i you know i, I had after the dreamcast i had a ps2 i ended up getting an xbox a gamecube so i'd own all the consoles in any given generation the big ones um so i you know i had quite a breadth of uh, knowledge and experience and love of games from around that time from various different platforms and of course i'm writing a book about the dreamcast i'm only going to be talking about pretty much the dreamcast from majority of the time so the podcast came about um because i wanted to talk about gaming as a whole around the time that the dreamcast was out um so we talked originally it was between the years 1997 and 2008 because the last officially licensed dreamcast game came out in japan in 2007 and we just like added a year either side um but because there's just so many great games we've we've expanded it now to 2000 sorry to 1994 to 2011 um just kind of encapsulate optical media based consoles and then up to the kind of fairly modern age with dlc and stuff like that but um so yeah it's it's me steve and rich and we kind of talk about each of these years in turn so we started originally with 1997 and we talk about what happened in that year and then the games that came out or some of the games that came out in that year and whether they were game changers or if they were just games so we do all that which is great love it it just gives me an opportunity to talk about games as a whole uh, you know, we always mention the Dreamcast, of course, and when guests come on, the question we ask them is what their favourite Dreamcast game is. So there's always mention of the Dreamcast, but we talk about gaming as a whole. And um, we ended up in 2020, end of 2020, we did uh, Radio Sega's Winterfest. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So I got invited to do that, both with the Dreamcast Junkyard and with Dreamcast Years, and we produced an episode where we did like a deep dive into Sega games that came out after the Dreamcast. Uh, for other consoles we had a look at the games some of the games that came out for other consoles afterwards and uh, really enjoyed it like we got to interact with the community as it aired and talk to people just really happy and uh, I-, I was like hey we could do this more so i approached um this green viper is the guy who manages it at the moment and he um you know i said i'd, I'd love to kind of do more with you and he was like yeah we'd love to we'd love to do more with you as well because that was great it was a great podcast so we just decided to, you know mutually that we would like to do more together so we just came up with hey well, let's have a, a time slot each week which is 8 8 p.m on a monday um and we just air an episode of dreamcast year so we'll either air a new episode there first or we will um kind of do a rerun of an old episode uh and yeah that, that's what we're going to be doing going forward so sounds excellent and again um anybody who hasn't heard dreamcast years make sure you get get a good listening to that because again it's a very good podcast lots of informative discussion around gaming as a whole and very educational for me as a gamer <laughs> um i'm gonna sort of 
bring us slowly to a close because we're, we're I'm aware of your time, of course. Um, have you got any other sort of gaming projects in the works, or are you is Dreamcast years and the podcast taking up too much of your time? Uh, I mean, it takes up a lot of time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I do kind of do another podcast with uh, the Cross Players. Uh, which oh at, yeah, at cross players on Twitter, um, and we they're more modern modern gaming based. So we talk about um, you know the next gen consoles and obviously the PS4 and stuff like that as well. And the Switch, it, it used to be the Switch Island, and uh, because we played more than just the Switch, we ended up moving o- over and being the cross play. So I do a bit of that. Um, they have a weekly podcast, and we do a game club over there, which I kind of run a little bit where we choose a few games each month. And all of the people in the community will play those games and we'll discuss them at the end of the month, like in a, in a little game club pod, podcast. Um, so that's kind of nice to do. It means we get to play play some of the games in our backlog, maybe, or ones that we wouldn't have considered playing. So that's fun. Um, other than that, I think... Uh, so Matt Gardner, who's the editor of uh, my books, and he runs Game Tripper UK as well, which is a great... Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, we have been talking for a while. We did mention it in the Kickstarter as well. Um, it's going to wait until the book is finished, but we are looking at producing a magazine. Awesome. So we've got a, it's called Years, um, all capitals, just like the Ed, just like Edge magazine. <laughs> so it's oh, Years. Um, we're looking into that. We've, we've got a couple of mock-ups done of what it's going to look like, um, but we are waiting until the new book is done and then we're going to really dive into it. And that's going to be like a limited magazine run of like eight issues and it's going to cover... Uh, gaming from like 1994 to 2009 and basically how gaming of that period influenced gaming now um that's what it's all about so looking back at the the history of gaming to show us you know how we got the games that we've got today as a result of uh, what came before them basically that sounds fantastic it just sounds right up my street i love that sort of stuff going back to the old games and looking at them and just appreciating what they were doing at the time and actually you'd be surprised how many really retro games even now you look at modern games you can see the resemblances you can see the inspirations yeah i love that i, I love those sorts of things yeah i mean and, and shemu is a great example of that because shemu yeah. is qtes and they're, they're something you see all over the place now um and you know it's it, it kind of gave us the open world game as we know it as well so it was a definitely an influencer of that so yeah being able to look back at games like Shenmue and games like that and just kind of seeing how they've influenced us now it's definitely something that I'm really interested in so yeah I shall look forward to that and keep an eye out for that with with a, a lot of interest that sounds really really good cool. so my final question to bring us a close is do you have a final message for the Shenmue dojo and the Shenmue community to sign us off um I think putting you on the spot. Yeah, put me on the spot. <laughs> um, I, I think just keep believing in in this saga being finished because that's the thing. Now we've we've got Shemu three. We fought for eighteen years to get Shemu three, and let's get Shemu four. That's what we need next. Keep fighting for it. And that's the hashtag we use as well. <laughs> exactly <Get> on brand. <laughs> Andrew. I thank you for your time. It's been a fantastic discussion and having you on the dojo. I would gladly have you back when you finish Shenmue 3. I think we could do a yeah. deep dive into your thoughts around around great. the game as a whole going forward. Um, I wish you luck with, with the Dreamcast years too. I think that book is, is going to really set the world alight. The first one is fantastic mm-hmm. and your podcasts are, are fantastic as well. So for everybody out there, get get out there, get look up 
Dreamcast Years um, 1, get on Dreamcast Years 2 and the Dreamcast Years podcast because there's some fantastic content out there. And all that remains for me to say, Andrew, is thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.